Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the second part of our podcast series on the digital euro and especially welcome, of course, to Manuel. Good to have you here again today. Hi, Alex. I'm really looking forward to it. So this is part number two out of four of our series on the digital euro. In part one, we provided you with uh, yeah, a basic understanding of our current monetary system. And we believe that this first part is extremely important also in order to understand everything that follows, including the part today. So in the first part, as I said, we talked about the existing architecture and the existing um, monetary system. We talked about how the current monetary system work, works, which forms of money exist. And in particular, we also talked about the difference between digital money and digitized money. Because when we say the digital euro, what we actually mean is the digitized euro. And I'm sure many of you know this discussion that, oh, actually the digital euro already exists. Many of the things we are using when it comes to money and, and making um, money transfers are already uh, digitalized. But there is still a difference because the digitized euro means that now the euro is represented in form of a token and probably also on a blockchain or a distributed ledger technology. So we are going to use the word digital euro, but just for you to know what we actually mean is the digitized euro. So the token-based euro that sits uh, on a blockchain because that's what's really new. And if this is new to you, what Alex just said, um, so that you are don't uh, that you are not familiar with the differentiation between digitized and digital money, um, or the digitalized money, then just go back to the first session. Um, hear it again. Uh, this will help you a lot in the upcoming sessions. Also in this session, um, where we will focus on one type of this digitized euro, um, and we showed in the last episode that there is basically two different versions uh, of the money that already um, exists. And there's a public sector euro and a private sector euro. The public sector euro are basically central bank reserves and banknotes. Uh, these are created by the public sector, by the central bank. But there's also the private sector euro, which is basically commercial bank money. They also create this type of money. And um, similar to the today's euro, the digital euro can also be provided by the public or the private sector. And in this episode, we talk about the digital euro that uh, comes from the public sector, so from the central bank. And this form of the digital euro is uh, known as central bank digital currency or CBDC. And this is going to be the focus of this episode. So broadly speaking, there are two types of a CBDC. You can differentiate a CBDC into what's called a wholesale CBDC and a retail CBDC. So let's maybe first talk about what a wholesale CBDC is. A wholesale CBDC is conceptually very similar to today's central bank reserves. So as you know, and as we have discussed in the first part, banks today have accounts at the central bank and in these accounts they hold what's called central bank reserves. Now the difference between a wholesale CBDC and these central bank reserves is the underlying technology. So a wholesale CBDC would not 
be um, based on accounts, but a wholesale CBDC would be a token-based form of money, which potentially lies on a distributed ledger technology. Or at least uh, this form of money would use technology that is also commonly, commonly used in, in, in the blockchain realm. For instance, cryptography, hashes, and so on. And um, consequently, the discussion around these wholesale CBDCs Uh, basically boils down to the question um, if um, the central bank should actually change the way this money is represented uh, technology-wise and change it from an account-based system, so the account-based reserves, to a token-based money, uh, which potentially sits on a DLT. So this question is purely technologically. Um, it's basically about uh, taking something that already exists, which are the account-based central bank reserves, and uh, just put it into a new technological framework. Yeah. Um, so still in this wholesale CBDC, um, only banks could access this type of money. So the two-tiered structure of the current monetary system where the central bank provides money or medium of exchange for commercial banks and uh, commercial banks provide the medium of exchange for non-banks, basically stays the same. Yeah? And um, the advantages of taking uh, central bank money out of accounts um, are mostly the advantages of distributed ledger technology. So you can think of different things here. For instance, what would be possible when you have a tokenized form of this money is you would be able to program this money. You could... Um, um, establish something like a programmable payments. What's also possible is that your money becomes interoperable with smart contracts and this in a very smoothless way because smart contracts usually sit on a blockchain. When you now tokenize your money and also put it on a blockchain, you have basically two tokens sitting on a blockchain or two, two uh, infrastructures sitting on a blockchain which can communicate very smoothlessly. And this allows you to make things like delivery versus payment, which means you can basically trade Two, token, two tokens against each other. And you could imagine that one token, for instance, represents a, um, an asset, let's say a, a, an equity, for instance, a stock, right? And the other token would represent the money. So you, can, you could exchange the, the stock for the money in a very smoothless, efficient, and in particular, very fast way. Interestingly, uh, there were already quite a few tests from central banks where they actually tested this type of uh, central bank money um, and they traded it against uh, tokenized bonds. So, for example, in, uh, from the Swiss National Bank, um, they also did some tests there. They were highly successful. So, um, there are some advantages um, using this new technology for the wholesale sector uh, and therefore to introduce a wholesale CBDC. However, this is not the only form of uh, central bank money that could be digitized um, because we look now at the wholesale level, but we can also look at the retail level. And this is even uh, the more interesting discussion. And this is uh, basically also uh, what we will focus this episode on. So it's not only, and this is very, very important, uh, this is not only a question of technology because what we saw currently is that central banks do not provide a digital medium of exchange to the non-banking sector. So the most important question related to a retail CBDC is basically if non-banks should get access to central bank money, to digital central bank money, 
because this is currently not the case. Uh, we only have access to physical central bank money, right? so namely banknotes. And only after this question has been answered with yes, the second question is if this retail CBDC should actually be put into accounts or taken out of accounts and represented as tokens. Right? So uh, the two dimensions are often mixed up in the discussion about a retail CBDC. So a lot of people start with the assumption that a retail CBDC would be a token-based central bank digital currency on a distributed ledger. However, uh, first and foremost, a retail CBDC would basically be a digital central bank money for all. Dirk Niepelt, a researcher, calls it uh, central bank reserves for all because this is basically what it is. Yeah? And the technology side is basically secondary to, to this question whether central banks should issue such a CBDC. Yeah, and you also see this when you follow the discussion of, of the ECB and also in the US partially that the central banks approach this topic in a very non-technological way. So the ECB, when, when, it, when it approaches the discussion around CBDC, they first ask the question, which are the scenarios that might require the introduction of a CBDC? What are the use cases? Why would we need it? And for, for which cases? And then only as a second step, they think about, okay, if A, B, C are our three use cases, which technology would be necessary in order to implement these use cases? And I think, by the way, that this is a very smart way of approaching this topic. And it's a bit unfortunate that the whole discussion around CBDC was so much tied to the technology in the beginning. But I'm also seeing that we kind of become smarter in disentangling the technology discussion from this more uh, conceptual discussion what a CBDC actually is. So there are different forms of a retail CBDC and maybe we go a bit more into detail on what these forms are. There are basically three versions which we can differentiate. There is a direct CBDC, an indirect or synthetic CBDC, and a hybrid CBDC. And what I would suggest is that we quickly present all three versions to you because they are also interesting in order to get a better picture of what CBDC actually means. The only thing what's important is that, in essence, a retail CBDC is really simply digital cash. And... A retail CBDC, as we mentioned already, can be account-based or token-based. So all the three forms which we are going to present to you now, so direct, indirect, and hybrid, can be token-based or account-based. And in particular, for the end user, it will probably not make a big difference whether he or she uses a direct, a hybrid, or an indirect CBDC. So in the end, the end user is probably using a card, a wallet on, on his or her phone, a smartwatch, whatever, in order to pay. However, what we are going to talk about now is the backend of the CBDC. And the reason why this backend is so um, important is that however you design a CBDC will have, will have huge implications on what you are able to do with this CBDC. So for instance, will I be able to implement something like programmability, offline payments, privacy features. All these kinds of things heavily depend on the back end and how such a CBDC is uh, designed. But as you said, basically, uh, like with every technology, uh, it's the best uh, way that you don't really have to care about the underlying technology. So the end customer will use some interface and uh, it, we won't know how the things in the background actually work. Um, but as you said, distributed ledger technology 
can enable a lot of new technological features and therefore uh, it's really interesting if such a retail CBDC will then finally also um, uh, look like uh, um, yeah, digital currencies as we, as we now use some of them. Yeah. So, Manuel, I, I think the easiest and most intuitive version is probably the direct CBDC. So why don't you start and uh, give us an insight into what a direct CBDC is? Sure. So, as you can imagine, uh, the direct CBDC, as it stems from the word, would be a direct claim against the central bank. So what does that mean? This is basically the most intuitive version, um, as non-banks simply have a bank account at the central bank, right? Um, and they either have it in an account way, as we said, or they also can have uh, um, uh, or can hold a token that is issued by the central bank. And uh, the central bank in this version basically also operates the retail ledger. So it basically also knows of all the transactions or manages all these transactions. And as, the re as a result, the central bank is basically involved in all payments. Yeah? The account-based version would work very similar to our current bank accounts at commercial banks. Uh, but the difference would be that you would hold central bank money. So it would probably or most probably become also digital legal tender um, and instead of only holding commercial bank money which uh, as you remember from the first session is a claim against the commercial bank to withdraw physical legal tender right so there's the big difference with commercial bank money you only hold a claim to withdraw legal tender which is physical cash and with a direct cbdc you would actually hold this legal tender directly in a digital form. From an end user uh, perspective, as Alex already explained, the direct token-based CBDC would probably feel quite similar to an account-based version. Um, however, in the back end, uh, this work would work uh, quite differently, right? So uh, in the back end with a token one, it potentially would be sitting on a distributed ledger uh, or other uh, cryptographic infrastructure, whereas in an account-based version, uh, this could be um, implemented quite easily also with the current setup with um, accounts. So another version of a CBDC would be a hybrid CBDC, And hybrid already um, alludes to the fact that this is something like a public-private partnership between the public sector and the private sector. So between the central bank and I would say banks and other financial intermediaries or financial institutions. In this case, the money itself would still be a direct liability of the central bank. Similar to the uh, direct CBDC, this money could be uh, in form of, uh, of accounts or could lie in accounts or it could be represented as a token. However, what's the difference to a direct CBDC is that the whole management of the accounts or the distribution of the tokens, as well as the know your customer and anti-money laundering, the customer onboarding, all this customer-facing work, this would be taken over by private institutions. So as I've said, banks would be one option, but would not have to be banks. So um, also other, let's say, payment service providers could take over this um, task. And very similar to physical cash, the central bank would more or less provide this money. But the, the point of contact with the end user, the whole UX and, as I said, customer-facing work would be managed by the private sector. And 
one thing that's unclear now is how such a hybrid CBDC would work in detail because there are different designs possible how the private and the public sector could work together. For instance, we could imagine that the central bank holds a full copy of the of the ledger. So the central bank still knows every um, individual transaction. The, the advantage of this would be that the central bank, if the private sector fails, the central bank could simply take over the payment system, right? So this is a, this is a very safe and secure way of handling this. However, from a privacy point of view, it's probably not the best solution that the central bank can um, yeah, check more or less every single transaction. So there's also a different version of a hybrid CBDC where the central bank would basically only have access to a wholesale ledger. So if Manuel and I make a transaction, um, let's say we make 100 transactions back and forth during the day, then only the netted amount at the end of the day will be sent to the ledger at the central bank. So this is a more private version um, of, of, this, of this CBDC. And maybe as a last point here, because we already talked about uh, how would this look like and feel for the end user, hybrid CBDC and a direct CBDC would look very similar to the end user. But why is it why is it um, important to make this distinction? Now imagine, and we are going to talk a bit more about this in, in a second when we talk about advantages and dis disadvantages, if the central bank is responsible to take over everything that's related to payments and CBDC and storing and managing money, you will of course also get an account at the central bank and a, a UX and front aid from the central bank. And this UX might be um, not as convenient as a user interface you get from the private sector, right? Because the private sector is, of course, very focused on making, creating great products for, for end users. So this is why it's it's not irrelevant who provides this product and what happens in the back end. So as we saw in the hybrid version, um, as you said, this, this is already a public-private partnership. Now, there's another form of uh, CBDC. Well, it's questionable if it's actually a CBDC, and we will get back to this uh, also next session where we will um, uh, talk about the private solutions for a digitized euro because we can also um, design a CBDC in an indirect form. This is also a rather public-private partnership, you could say, uh, but it comes more from the private sector because an indirect CBDC, which is also known as a synthetic CBDC, is basically a mix between public and private money. It's not really a CBDC um, because what you actually have is only a claim on the CBDC. So let's look into this. So again here, it can be account-based or token-based. Um, uh, with an account-based indirect CBDC, the end user holds an account at a commercial bank. But contrary to today's bank accounts, these accounts are fully backed by central bank reserves. Yeah? And this is also known as narrow banking. So there were um, some proposals already in the 30s to um, you know, change the complete monetary system to such a system. This is also known as 100% money. Um, where basically all the claims against a commercial bank that you hold are backed 100% with central bank money, with central bank reserves, right? This is the account-based version. A token-based version would basically be the same. However, um, you would hold a token, and this token is backed 100% um, uh, with central bank reserve money in the accounts at the central bank. And uh, very importantly, these reserves um, would basically be held in escrow accounts at the central bank, 
such that they can only be used to back the synthetic CBDC, so the indirect CBDC, and not for general liquidity purposes. This is important because uh, now let's say the bank issues such an indirect CBDC to 10% of the um, um, people that, uh, or the bank account, uh, the bank customers that uh, uh, the bank has, and basically the the money that the uh, commercial bank holds on their balance sheet uh, is represent is represented or is made up 10% of the CBDC from of this indirect CBDC, and now 15% of the rest of the money is transferred away from the bank. Then the bank needs central bank reserves to actually finance this transaction. And this money that uh, are, is held at uh, the bank as an indirect CBDC cannot and must not be used for this transaction, right? So this money that is held in these escrow accounts must not be used for regular transactions in the interbanking system. That's very important. Yes, absolutely. Because only in this case, it would be 100% secure. And I could trust on the fact that whenever the bank gets broke, my money or whenever the bank defaults, my money is still in the central bank account. I will still be able to redeem my token or exchange the money on my account for central bank money. From an end user perspective, this indirect CBDC would most likely be uh, perfectly integrated in existing banking products, for example, as a separate account in your online banking, where you can then say, well, I want to put some money aside and back it 100%ly Uh, by a central bank reserves, um, for example, as a store of value function. Yeah, yeah Manuel, I think this, this is a nice uh, leeway into the discussion about advantages and disadvantages of these uh, different forms of CBDC. And you already mentioned one of the advantages of such a indirect CBDC. It's very close to the private sector. And of course, we can um, leverage the comparative advantage of the private sector here, which is being innovative, being efficient, being close to the end user, especially when it comes to t developing intelligence uh, solutions and, and products. Uh, another great ex advantage of this setup, of this uh, design, would also be that it, as I said, could be very easily and quickly be implemented you know, into the existing structure. A disadvantage is that it's not really a CBDC, because the money is not a liability of the central bank. It's uh, only a synthetic uh, CBDC, so it's only a proxy for CBDC. And therefore, you are still exposed to operational risks in the banking sector. Uh, you uh, have the, the, the money in escrow accounts, but uh, you still have a claim against a private commercial bank. Um, and therefore, central, bank, uh, central banks don't really like uh, the indirect CBDC and the synthetic CBDC. And they also potentially don't like the term because it refers to a central bank digital currency, whereas really it's not. Yeah, and I believe we can already make the prediction that at least in the near future, um, an indirect CBDC will not enter the market. At least it will not be called indirect CBDC and it will not be supported by central banks. And we already, um, yeah, I, I talk to a lot of central banks and um, you realize that they feel very uncomfortable. And also when you listen to their speeches, they feel very uncomfortable with the term CBDC in relation to something that is issued by the private sector because they want to reserve this right for themselves to issue something that is called a central bank money. So um, I, I'm pretty sure, and this is also why we integrated this indirect CBDC into our next 
part where we talk about the private digital euro, I believe that uh, indirect CBDC will soon be called something like a stable coin uh, issued by banks or, or something similar because it's it's actually, if you're really um, yeah uh, strict, it's not a CBDC. Um, yeah, maybe let's let's jump to the other version where we believe which won't be introduced in the near future, and that's the uh, direct CBDC. Let's maybe quickly uh, talk about the advantages, which which goes quick because uh, here we have more disadvantages than advantages. I believe maybe Manuel, uh, you can start with the with the advantages of a direct CBDC. Sure. So. As said already, it's it's quite simple and intuitive to understand because basically what you have is an account at the central bank. Yeah? So these uh, accounts can be facilitated using existing technology and payment rails. Um, so, for example, every citizen could uh, get a TIPS account for real-time payments and uh, most probably also the technology could handle it. However, um, central banks and this uh, will basically lead us already to the disadvantages. They don't have the necessary resources nor the expertise to offer uh, accounts or also wallets, uh, whether it be a, a tokenized version of this uh, direct CBDC directly to the end users. So there's on the one hand, uh, two uh, less uh, human resources uh, to manage this, but also um, two less expertise um, uh, with um, you know all these anti-money laundering and um, uh, other uh, restrictions and uh, legislations that uh, commercial banks uh, have really an expertise in. Another very uh, big advantage that you often hear is the term uh, disintermediation of the banking sector. Yeah. But it's a, it's a disadvantage, not an advantage. That's that's important. Yeah, it's it's a disadvantage yeah. for the for the banking sector because banks would lose. Um, one of their or the most important funding source and this might lead to liquidity outflows right so in the end imagine you as an end user if you have the choice between the most secure form of money that exists which is central bank money on a central bank account versus money in your bank account where at least um, if you hold more than a hundred thousand you are exposed to the counterparty or credit risk of the bank of course in particular during crisis you will choose the more secure money in the central bank so if you are allowed or able to hold an unlimited amount of funds in your central bank account you can basically run the bank very easily by simply making a transfer a transfer from your bank account to your central bank account and this of course creates issues for banks in particular during crisis and also central banks fear this situation because their role could actually become more important as their balance sheet might increase and because more and more money is flowing into their balance sheet. Um, and then also these, these inflows need to be managed. So the asset side of the central bank um, balance sheet becomes more and more important. And ultimately, um, many uh, economists and central bankers fear that the central bank uh, then has to you know, grant credits and grant loans to the commercial banks and therefore also uh, get credit risk from the commercial banks inside of their balance sheet and ultimately potentially also um, become responsible for credit decisions as they need to refinance the loan the bank grants to a higher degree, right? Um, and so even some economists fear that the credit creation of the commercial banking se uh, sector and other important functions of banks could actually be hampered. Um, 
a very short discussion, and uh, I might open that from, from my side, is that the term disintermediation is quite uh, special because I don't uh, really think that it's a, a perfect term for this um, process that we have described um, because it easily leads to the conclusion that banks will have insufficient funds to lend out, uh, like the intermediaries of loanable funds theory of commercial banks suggests. So you read a lot of times that if this bank is then if this money is transferred from the commercial banking sector into the central bank balance sheet, then the banks lack the funds that they need to lend out. This is not the case, as we have uh, explained in the first sector, how, in the first session. However, what is the, the case is that the financing of the banks might become more um, expensive because a, a loan from the central bank used to be always more expensive than um, you know, holding liabilities against the non-banking sector. Yeah, I believe so, I believe you could you could probably summarize this point by saying disintermediation does not mean that banks do not have sufficient funds in order to create credit, but disintermediation rather means that it might become more expensive for banks in order to create credit. And this, of course, might hamper the credit creation. But it's not the case that banks run out of funds and cannot uh, create a credit at all. Yeah. So the threat of a direct CBDC or CBDCs in particular or special, uh, the effect of such a money on the banking sector is much more complex than you would uh, think when you hear the term disintermediation. Uh, and it still needs to be studied uh, to be fully understood. So we will see in the upcoming months and years, I'm quite sure, uh, uh, quite a few studies on that. And one last uh, rather big disadvantage, and we already talked about that briefly, is that a, dire a direct CBDC would stifle innovation. So the private sector is much more innovative than the public sector, um, especially the central bank. Um, so developing intelligent and convenient products for the consumers can actually better be solved by the private uh, institutions than by a central bank. Yes, and that's exactly basically what the last form of a CBDC tries to do, the hybrid CBDC. And now we have already um, told you that we do not expect an indirect CBDC, neither do we expect a direct CBDC to, to be introduced. So it will most likely be a hybrid CBDC, which at least in Europe, the, the European Central Bank is working on or is going to work on in the future. And the reason why this is so so sexy is because it basically uses the comparative advantages of both the public and the private sector. So the central bank would in this uh, form issue the risk-free money and then the private sector would take on and take care of the front end and manage, and, and manage the customer relations. So you would get the security from the central bank and you would also get the innovation from the private sector. The disadvantage of such a hybrid CBDC would be that um, if a large share of the bank deposits are converted into such a hybrid CBDC, banks might actually become degraded to payment service providers. So it's not as dramatic, the effect is not as dramatic as uh, within the direct CBDC version. However, still, banks um, would uh, change quite substantially and their uh, role in the um, financial system they might have um, or they currently have might have um, uh, yeah, uh, quite a strong consequence or the, the CBDC might have consequences on that. Um, so 
in principle, it's it's the same problem as with uh, the direct CBDC, but not uh, as intense and severe. So when we now look back on these uh, three different uh, versions of CBDC, direct, hybrid and indirect, basically concluding that it will most likely be a hybrid CBDC that will be introduced, there's of course still a discussion ongoing about how will this hybrid CBDC look like um, um, in, in particular, right? When we go into the details, talking about design fe features, there are, of course, still many open questions. And there are some uh, voices, and I believe, uh, Manuel, it was uh, Ulrich Binzal from the ECB, the um, uh, general director of, of the payments section of the ECB. He, he talked uh, about CBDCs as a thick Swiss army knife that uh, should have a lot of features, including programmability, maybe providing anonymity, and maybe also being uh, capable of doing offline payments. But it is, of course, questionable if a retail CBDC and a hybrid retail CBDC will be equipped with all these uh, state-of-the-art uh, features because there will, of course, be a direct competition between the private sector or to the private sector. And um, if, if we make the CBDC too sexy, this will, of course, also create problems for the private sector. Yeah, to put it uh, correctly, actually, uh, Ulrich Binzel also talked about this um, uh, differentiation and he said, basically, some people ask for such a th uh, thick Swiss army knife that, uh, you know, that the central bank uh, digital currency has all these features. But he also questions that and, and, and uh, you know, states that potentially it might be a very um, uh, simple form of money. Yeah, that's actually but, that's actually important that you that you make this correction. I, I also talked to to Ulrich Binzel a couple of times, uh, and he actually favors, or at least that's what he he's presenting currently when he talks about this. He favors indeed a very simple and, by the way, also account based version of a CBDC. So far away from having a thousand different features, because uh, Ulrich is very aware of the fact that there's a trade off between making a CBDC too sexy and uh, crowding out uh, private money and uh, And, and making it uh, not sexy enough uh, such that it will not be used, right? So this is really a very important tra trade-off central banks are facing today when it comes to how should we design a retail CBDC. So what we will see most likely is that a central bank, a retail central bank digital currency uh, will not become a full substitute either for cash nor for commercial bank money. So it actually might become a new money class. And the challenge, as you said, is to, to make it attractive enough that such that it is, it is used, right? So, for example, when we look back to Ecuador, they already had such a retail CBDC, but it was not really used. Um, and that is something that uh, obviously central banks need and must, um, um, you know, uh, make sure that this is not happening. But on the other hand, don't make it too attractive, because otherwise it will crowd out commercial banks uh, and commercial bank money and also cash, right? So it, it most probably will not be a cash substitute because it most probably will not uh, be anonymous and it might potentially be interest bearing. And on the other hand, it's not a commercial banking, a commercial bank money substitute um, because of the fear of this disintermediation, right? So you could think of, for example, and this is what is discussed currently as a, a way to, to limit the substitution of uh, commercial bank money into CBDC, uh, to have a maximum amount restriction in place. Um, so such that you can um, only withdraw a certain amount of money 
from your bank account into the CBDC. Um, others propose that commercial bank money and CBDC must not be directly convertible. Yeah? So Kumhoff, uh, he's a researcher at the um, Bank of England, he has uh, issued a paper already, I think, in 2018, where he said that the convertibility in the prime in the primary market uh, must not uh, be allowed. So uh, you must not be allowed to digitally withdraw your claim on uh, central bank money directly into a central bank uh, money, into a CBDC, uh, but can only do that in the secondary market, where there are other people that want to sell or trade uh, their commercial banking money against the CBDC. Yeah? And another um, potential way to uh, restrict uh, this disintermediation fear uh, or this disintermediation is a two-tiered remuneration. And this has been put forth by Binsail from the ECB as well, where you would basically have two different interest rates on different amounts of CBDC that you hold. So um, this, the, the interest rate that is paid on the CBDC is always lower than the interest paid on commercial bank money. And uh, up to a certain threshold, up to a certain amount, you receive either a positive or zero remuneration on the CBDC. And if you cross that certain threshold, then the CBDC is remunerated either with zero interest rates, 0%, or even negatively. So let's say currently in the low interest rate environment that we are currently operating in, uh, uh, the central bank money, the retail CBDC, would up to uh, a certain threshold be remunerated with zero interest, and then afterwards negatively, because um, the difference between the slightly positive interest rate that commercial banks now pay you and the CBDC must be uh, of a certain percentage, so it will be negative. However, when we see, for example, rising interest rates, then this uh, interest rate that is paid on the uh, you know, upper part of the money that you want to hold will be a, a remunerated maximum with a maximum interest rate of 0%. Right? And this is all to make holding central bank digital, current, uh, central bank digital currency unattractive. So what Manuel just summarized are basically the attempts to find this trade-off between making a CBDC attractive enough such, such that it is used, giving it certain features, but also implementing mechanisms that avoid um, making it too attractive or avoid the private sector from being disintermediated, as we, as we called it before. We, we kind of entering the, the house through the back door currently because... When thinking about design features of a CBDC, the first question we should ask ourselves is, what are the use cases of a CBDC, right? Why would central banks introduce a CBDC and why would customers use it? So it, these should be the questions that we need to pose and answer first before we think about different design features. And that's exactly what the ECB did, by the way. So the ECB came up with seven scenarios in which a digital euro might become relevant in the future. So these scenarios include things like uh, we need to support the digitalization of the economy. Uh, a CBDC might become necessary if cash has disappeared. And all these kind of, of scenarios we are going to go into more detail um, next um, next session or in the last session, actually, um, when we talk about this. So in part number four. And 
in general, still the central bank, and I think this is this is interesting when we talk about use cases, it's always interesting to disentangle what would be a use case or an incentive for a central bank to introduce a CBDC and what would be a use case or incentive for an end user to use a CBDC. So Manuel, maybe you want to start with the central bank part. Why uh, would a central bank be interested in introducing a CBDC? Yeah. So generally, I think these advantages of a retail CBDC are very different between different countries and different currencies. So you could think of developed uh, countries and developing countries. And uh, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlement, did a survey and um, where, where uh, it, the survey stated that 80% worldwide are uh, 80% of the central banks worldwide are currently looking into this hot topic. Um, but the um, advantages for developing countries differ quite substantially from the developed countries. So for developing countries, it is rather uh, providing a robust and efficient uh, payment infrastructure because this is currently simply not there um, yet in these countries. Um, they also obviously think about financial inclusion because a large share of the population still does not have a bank account. In some uh, countries, it's even uh, up to 50%. Um, such uh, that uh, a retail CBDC could actually include them financially to provide them access to loans, but also to the um, financial markets. But also, obviously, for financial financial stability, because you would have a, a, a secure medium of exchange, uh, a digital medium of exchange. And they also stated that monetary policy implementation could be um, uh, more easily done using a, a CBDC. Uh, for developed countries, it differs a bit. Um, so you read a lot about cross-border payment sufficiency because you already have a robust and efficient payment infrastructure, uh, but maybe not on an international uh, level. Um, and uh, some also say that uh, financial stability could be enhanced. Yeah? Um, but importantly, um, a, a resilient payment system could also be provided by the public sector uh, that is completely independent by the private sector. So currently, this role is only played by cash. Uh, but if cash disappears, uh, we basically need an alternative to that. Um, and uh, otherwise, the end users would lose their access to legal tender because only physical cash is legal tender and the payment system would uh, be fully in private hands. And this is, for example, also an argument that you uh, can read and hear uh, when you read and listen to um, you know, publications from the Swedish Central Bank, because actually in Sweden, uh, the usage of physical cash has decreased uh, tremendously. And therefore, the central bank um, actually said that they need an alternative to uh, the, the private payment sector and need an alternative to the private money that the um, uh, inhabitants of Sweden actually use. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, not really... Um, only interesting to ask why central banks would introduce a CBDC, but also um, uh, why the end users uh, would use it. And uh, actually, the question is, uh, what's the value added of a retail CBDC for the end users? And the last point that I made could already also be, uh, you know, focused from that perspective. 
So exactly, we looked through the eyes of a central banker now on this whole topic. Now let's switch glasses, so to say, and look through the eyes of an anti-user. And I think this is even the more interesting question or the more interesting perspective, because you could, of course, ask the question, why would I as an end user need an additional form of a digital payment, right? Why would I need another possibility when I check out at Amazon in order to pay next to credit cards with a CBDC, right? It already works super efficiently and smoothly with existing private payment solutions. And since this is a fair question, I believe also that this discussion is the most interesting one. And we would like to give you a couple of reasons why it might still make sense, also from an end-user perspective, to use uh, such a CBDC. For instance, Manuel already mentioned one point. Such a CBDC would, of course, a retail CBDC now, would, of course, be a safe and public form of money and, in the end, legal tender that can be used by private individuals. So it's a payment infrastructure and legal tender that's independent from, from the private sector. And I think, especially when we talk about payment systems, it is important that we create some form of redundancy. So it is dangerous to rely only on one or two payment solutions that might be provided, provided exclusively by the private sector. I think it makes a lot of sense, as it is done uh, with cash today, to also have a payment system that is offered by the public sector. And then on top of that, the public sector can, of course, offer more than only this payment system. It can also give these payments or the money certain attributes that are currently not provided by the private sector. So I, I'm an economist, and for me, usually the the state should always play a role when the private sector fails, right? So when we have some kind of market failure, there is a role for the for the government or the state to play. And when we talk about payments and money, you could say that the private sector actually fails to offer, for instance, offline payments. There is no smooth and convenient way, way of doing offline payments with private sector solutions. Similarly, the private sector also does not offer anonymity and privacy. And these are all things which could be provided by a CBDC. Now, we also have to mention now, of course, that the discussion is completely open and it's not clear whether a CBDC will uh, allow offline uh, payments or private payments. But at least in our opinion, these would be roles uh, uh, public money could play in our ecosystem where, where it would really create a value added. So now let's maybe come to an end in this very interesting uh, session here um, and give an outlook on the upcoming one. So what we have done is we've talked about the public version of a digital euro now uh, with different recipients. So either on a wholesale level where only commercial banks uh, can use this type of money or also on the retail level where basically all non-banks can use this money. And we also talked about different designs of this retail CBDC, so a direct version, a hybrid version, or an indirect version. And many central banks are putting a lot of research into this topic now, but it is quite questionable, actually, if a central bank digital currency in a developed economy will come to light in the next uh, three years. Now, there are some exceptions, obviously. Um, so we see, for example, uh, the project in China accelerating now. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, discussions about uh, the Swedish version as well. 
And there is also already a version already live in the Bahamas uh, because they have introduced their CBDC already in 2020. Uh, that was the first CBDC that went live. But it is quite questionably that we see a euro, a digitized euro in the next uh, three years that comes from the public sector, right? Um, so just like the current system in which the private sector creates the majority of the money supply, as we have uh, expressed and explained in the first session, uh, it could also provide a digital form of the euro. Yeah? So synthetic CBDC is only one possibility uh, that we have already uh, talked about today. Uh, but we will discuss all the other possibilities next session. So focusing on stablecoins, tokenized e-money, or even tokenized commercial bank money. Absolutely. So today we have focused on the public version of the private euro, but just as Manuel said, the private version of the digital euro does also exist. So just like we have a, let's say, normal Digital, normal euro that is provided by the private sector, we can of course also have a digital euro that is provided by the private sector. And this next and third part of the series will be the, yeah, let's say most futuristic one, because this these are indeed all forms of money that have not existed before and that are in, a, in an extremely infant state, but they are also, in my opinion, the most exciting ones, right? When we talk about stablecoins, they have grown immensely in the year 2020 and expect this growth to go on in 2021. When we think about how could tokenized commercial bank money look like, right? This is something um, hardly anyone has, has thought about. Which role would banks play in, in this world? So I believe the next session will be very interesting. So Manuel, I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, then uh, talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Alex. It was a blast. And uh, yeah, talk to you tomorrow.